One of the reasons why I think we have to we have to really seriously consider reform is that the crop of younger professors coming out, they're much more politically homogenous than they are today, believe it or not. And they are much less good on free speech and academic freedom um, when it comes to major political issues. And that's scary. Welcome to Act in Line, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Eric Cohn, executive producer. Today, we're bringing you a conversation with Greg Lukianoff, the president and CEO of FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, about his new book with journalist Ricky Schlott, The Canceling of the American Mind. Cancel culture undermines trust and threatens us all, but there is a solution. Cancel culture is a relatively new phenomenon, and The Canceling of the American Mind is the first book to codify it and survey its effects. From the team that brought you the best-selling coddling of the American mind comes hard data and research on what cancel culture is and how it works, along with hundreds of new examples showing the left and the right both working to silence their opponents. Rather than a moral panic, we should consider it a dysfunctional part of how Americans battle for power, status, and dominance. Cancel culture is just one symptom of a much larger problem the use of cheap rhetorical tactics to, quote, win arguments without actually winning arguments. After all, why bother refuting your opponents when you can just take away their platform or career? The canceling of the American mind offers concrete steps towards reclaiming a free speech culture with materials specifically tailored for parents, teachers, business leaders, and everyone who uses social media. We can all show intellectual humility and promote the essential American principles of individuality, resilience, and open-mindedness. Greg Lukianoff is an attorney, New York Times best-selling author, and the president and CEO of the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, or FIRE. He is the author of Unlearning Liberty, Campus Censorship and the End of American Debate, Freedom from Speech, and FIRE's Guide to Free Speech on Campus. He is the co-author, along with Jonathan Haidt, of the best-selling The Coddling of the American Mind, How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting Up a Generation for Failure. Greg has been published in The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, The Washington Post, Los Angeles Times, Boston Globe, and numerous other publications. He frequently appears on TV shows and radio programs, including the CBS Evening News, The Today Show, and NPR's Morning Edition. He's the author of the new book, The Canceling of the American Mind, cancel culture undermines trust and threatens us all, but there is a solution, which we'll be discussing today. You can find additional resources in the show notes for this episode, as well as find previous episodes of Acton Line on our website at acton.org slash actonline. And if you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Greg Lukianov, welcome to Acton Line. Thanks for having me. So your book is The Canceling of the American Mind, Cancel Culture Undermines Trust and Threatens Us All, But There Is a Solution. We will definitely get to the solutions, but why don't we start with a definition? How do you define cancel culture? 
Sure. And we spend some time talking about other definitions that we think are good as well, including Jonathan Rausch's um, seven-point um, uh, matrix for figuring out if it's cancel culture from his great book, Constitution of Knowledge. But we settled on a much simpler definition, um, which is, and it, it, it comports with what I observed on the ground, you know, working, defending free speech and academic freedom on campus, um, which is the uptick of campaigns to get people uh, fired, expelled, deplatformed uh, that be uh, that began around 2014 and accelerated in 2017 for speech that would be protected under the First Amendment. Now, there we explain this in, in the appendix, so we don't want to bog down the definition. We want to keep it nice and short. Um, we're talking about kind of an analogy to public employee law, the kind of things that could because uh, public employees are assumed to have some amount of uh, free speech right. You can't fire someone for, you know, for in one example, writing an op-ed in the local newspaper uh, talking about school board elections. Um, uh, so, um, and the culture of uh, conformity that resulted from this uptick. Um, and what we're trying to do there is to establish it as a historical period, the, the same way People talk about the Red Scare or they talk about the Victorian era. Um, we think that this should more or less be thought of as the age of cancel culture. And why 2014? Uh, honestly, Coddling the American Mind, my previous book with Jonathan Haidt, um, does a lot more to, like explaining why. So we didn't do as much of it in Canceling of the American Mind. But the technology that made cancel culture so pervasive it, it is social media, the, the ability to instantly create a the at least the appearance of a massive angry mob um, out of the ether is pretty novel uh, in human history. Well, and the the ability of everybody, regardless of who they are, or where they're from, to express any thought they have at the moment they have it. So I, I'm not whether sure they if, should or not, whether they should or not. Absolutely. So the. I'm wondering if if this is the year, because uh, you said you picked 2014 for where to start, and I cannot remember her name, and I should have looked it up before we talked, but the um, the relatively, not relatively, the unknown woman who made oh, a- Oh, Justine Sacco. Justine Sacco, that's it, mm -hmm. who made a um, joke as she was getting on a flight to South Africa about, you know, hope I don't get, I think it's hope I don't get AIDS, I won't, I'm white. Um, yeah. And by the time, you know, I remember it, uh, you know, from being too- terminally online myself, that it was trending, you know, like, has Justine landed yet, right? Yeah. Um, so this is the first example that I think I remember. Um, yeah. But you do have that input being added to it as well, right? That you have more people who are, generally speaking, you know, nobodies in the public sphere who yeah. can offer a thought about whatever that can then get amplified by people who wish to form this kind of mob. Um, so the, there's an input side of this as well, as well as the uh, the, the mob formation side of it. Yeah. And, and we talked about Justine Sacco's case in our 2015-2016 uh, documentary, Can We Take a Joke? Uh, we talked to um, uh, John Ronson, Ron Johnson, John Ronson, um, uh, uh, about that. Um, and we were able to interview him because he wrote a book called nah, So You've Been Publicly Shamed. Which is really one of the like probably the first book other than a short book called Freedom from Speech um, that actually talked about cancel culture before it even had a name. And can we take a joke? Was our was actually a documentary we started back in 2012 because we were hearing from comedians um, through our you know cooperation with people at the um, Comedy Cellar in Dorman that they didn't like playing campuses anymore because they couldn't use their good material. And this was from this was from Lee Camp, like someone who's who, who's very far to the left himself, but he's like, yeah, that's just not worth it. So 
where does this come from? You know, so we, we pick this period of time, 2014, mm-hmm. roughly, where it starts. Uh, so you have what we just talked about. You have social media. You have the internet becoming even more mainstream, the ability of people to offer whatever thought they have. Where does this desire, this impetus for forming these kinds of mobs to try to cancel people, where do you think it comes from? Oh, that part, I think, is old as a species. Um, the, you know, the desire to kind of, you know, get people together, a, a mob of certainty against the blasphemers, you know, like that, like that goes along with human civilization. There was a great... Um, quote, I can't remember who said it, but in the ancestral environment, the only time uh, you met someone that you profoundly agreed on, on uh, d- disagreed with on fundamental issues was at the point of a spear, <laughs> which is, you know, there's some truth to that. Um, so I definitely think the instinct to cancel um, is as old as the species. Um, it, uh, Nat Hentoff used to joke about this as well. I think uh, we developed a lot of good cultural mechanisms for reining that in a bit uh and we call it, and, and the book we call that free speech culture like the idea of like to each th- like we talk about a way to think of free speech culture is already embedded in a lot of idioms we unfortunately don't use very much anymore um my co-author on the book uh as you know is the you know 23 year old genius young woman named uh, ricky schlott um and it was very nice to be able to uh, to to write with her because it, it it was a way of sort of checking myself as a Gen Xer, you know, about what, you know, what's going on with kids today. Um, and she uh, made the point that when I talk about these idioms and the ones I'm getting at are things like to each their own, everyone's entitled to their opinion, it's a free country, don't judge a book by its cover, uh, walk a mile in a man's shoes. These are all small d democratic values, like the, the idea of kind of like, check yourself, man, you don't know everything. And, 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 and that person, you know, things you don't. And who are you to judge them? Those are those are great values if you're living in a pluralistic democracy um, and you want it to work, at least. Um, I grew up with them. I'm sure you heard them all the time as a kid. Um, but uh, Bricky didn't. Uh, and I think that uh, we've lost sight of some of these norms that help us kind of check ourselves and our own arrogance and our own certainties. Um, and meanwhile, we've uh, partially due to higher ed um, and, uh, and, and getting into the younger grades through K through 12. Uh, we've entered an age uh, that I talked about in my first book on learning liberty 2012, a kind of an age of certainty. You know, like I was saying, like we live in certain times. I know you're supposed to say that we live in uncertain times, but there's a sort of moral absolutism, you know, that uh, uh, comes uh, that sometimes is explained as sort of um, social justice fundamentalism that, that um, Tim Urban calls it. And uh, that and interestingly, uh, so so I think so, some of it has to do with the ideology. And so we talk about all the different ways, you know, what was so different about the students in coming uh, hitting campus around 2014 in coddling the American mind. And we have like six different, you know, things. Well, one is the technology, of course. Two is polarization. Uh, three is paranoid parenting. Four is lack of free play. Five why is more like why campuses five is the hyper-bureaucratized university, and six, of course, are the new ideas, uh, the, the new ideology. And we so we, we wanted to make sure that people knew that isn't the only thing that's going on here, but but of course it plays an important role. Here's something we didn't say in Coddling the American Mind that getting to talk more with Ricky made me uh, think a lot more about, even though it was kind of clear, um, that to a, real, a very real degree, cancel culture is junior high school, but extended to the entire world. <laughs> <laughs> and in a very literal sense, because 
Uh, Ricky was, you know, unfortunate enough in a lot of ways to grow up uh, with the first, you know, teenagers who had, I mean, she had a, a cell phone since she was 10. And you give a, a bunch of, you know, middle middle school girls uh, um, technology that allows for a lot of relational uh, aggression. You know, you, you've just given, you know, the mean girl syndrome superpowers. And a lot of this was developed as a way of sort of, you know, uh, fighting for social status among young kids. Uh, but it was so effective. And particularly if you use the language of social justice, you you know, you, you, you can take advantage of the entire psychology of taboos to win your interrelational battles. And this started hitting um, campuses around 2014, because that's when the first generation of people who, who grew up with this technology in their pockets really started hitting. And it should have been checked there. It, there, there. There should have been campuses going, this is not the way we argue. Like, you know, just pointing out that someone's a bad person and therefore you don't have to listen to them anymore. That's arguing like children. But instead, campuses were already, you know, home to a lot of this, you know, sort of overly simplistic thinking and propagate, propagated and expanded it rather than uh, tamped it down. I've heard it said that, you know, let me put it this way. Why are so many of the adults in these situations seemingly terrified oh, of yeah. the younger kids? I think you see this in both academia and in the business world. Because you'd heard for a while that as we were observing some of these problems on college campuses, people would say, oh, wait till they get yeah. out in the real world. Wait till they see what it's like to be in a corporate environment and then this whole thing will change. And well, I'm sure there are examples of that, right? You know, so I, I can't remember who was who made this point that we, we that I'm sure you're more intimately familiar with it, given Fire's work, that we hear about all the terrible stories of free speech incidents or free speech problems on college campuses. But there are thousands of colleges and universities in the country. I'm sure some of them operate fairly normally without the kind of awful examples that uh, get to the, you know, the top trending on on Twitter. But. Uh, so I'm sure there are people who have gotten into the business world or the real world and acclimated to it. But there yeah. does seem to be both college professors uh, who, you know, maybe of a certain political ideology, but still seem to be terrified of the students in their classrooms. And certainly business executives, people in companies who seem to be terrified of the younger people who work for them. Anybody who follows, you know, the fallout of what happened with um uh, Tom Cotton's uh, essay in the New York Times and the way that it was the employees of the Times in the Slack channel who were the ones really pushing back on this. Why do you think there has been that failure of the adults? Yeah, yeah, uh, it, it's a great question. But the first thing I, I want to address, and we address this in the appendix because it's often used as a way of sort of diminishing cancel culture, is this argument that there are thousands of universities. And while that is technically true, um, about 50% of four-year college students attend only about 200 schools. Um, and if you get that up to about 600, you're talking about more than 80% of, of all college students. Mm -hmm. And the thing about cancel culture, um, one of the reasons why it's so insidious and so it, it, uh, much more important than that I think people understand, 
is it's also concentrated at the top. Um, like the top 10 schools in the country uh, uh, like account for something like 5% of cancel culture. Um, we found that half of cancel culture is about 80 schools, uh, all in the top 200 uh, of schools. And that's important because that means that, and I think this is actually a, a problem in the United States, we give way too much power to Harvard, Yale, Stanford, et cetera, in terms of deciding who are forgive the expression, ruling classes. And I think that's, and I think it's profoundly unhealthy. We get all the distortions of these uh, weird elite, uh, elite colleges. Now, why do the adults go along with it? Um, there is, you know, some, uh, there's a kind of long answer to that. One, um, with the lack of political diversity, uh, you know, we, we live more isolated from people we disagree with politically now, um, right down to, we also uh, are more isolated from people who are not in the same economic class uh, as we are. And also development, I think, is highly unhealthy. Um and I think in that circumstance, you know, if you're going to a corporation that has overwhelmingly also people who are, you know, a, a millennial lefties and you show up making arguments that appeal to lefties, you know, uh, saying, you know, more or less like in the name of social justice, I think we should fire Larry. <laughs> that's going to go farther in a, in, a um, in, in an environment, you know, that's more politically homogenous. And yeah, the, these institutions have gotten more politically homogenous. So that's part of it is that some of them just agree with it. like, and, and this is something we've seen. A lot of the dynamic was the Gen Z started hitting places like the New York Times and some of the millennials actually, uh, uh, you know, agreed with them to a degree or, or, or facilitated them. The, the scarier part of it is HR. Um, the like the fear that essentially if uh, someone comes in, you know, I was just talking to someone who will re remain nameless, um, but she is a, a non-white woman herself. She talks about, you know, starting at a nonprofit and um, they couldn't and, and she worked with a, a, a white boss and the white boss was constantly being sort of dismissed and and and. and told that he just didn't understand things and, th and that uh, things were always framed as being sort of discrimination from him. And basically, you know, uh, he, he felt forced out. But for the Iranian woman, they didn't, they couldn't quite play the, um, the like the race uh, aspect of it. So instead, they just said that they felt unsafe and that therefore that became a uh, an issue for HR. And the law, when it comes to, you know, anti-discrimination law, gives companies some reason to, to worry about uh, uh, things like this. And particularly if you have employees who are willing to take advantage of it, um, you're at a disadvantage. And unfortunately, the entire field of HR uh, sometimes has a little bit of a, uh, an aspect to them where, the, where they kind of think they're saving the corporation from itself, more or less. Um, so we wrote something called how to keep your corporation out of the culture war. And me and John Haidt, um, that, that went up at Persuasion trying to teach, um, uh, trying to give advice to corporations on how to navigate these things. Um, but I think that, uh, I think a lot of these corporations, they weren't ready for it. They had no natural immunity uh, because they had no uh, political diversity. They uh, And they were sort of outfoxed in a sense by a savvier generation that was more willing to go immediately to the internet um, to uh, air their uh, their dirty laundry, um, and an environment where legally, you know, they, they might actually have some reason to, uh, to be, uh, you know, afraid of terminating employees. Um, for uh, it's one of the reasons why I find it so. Uh, I, I I I I know Vivek Ramaswamy. I think he's a smart dude, very very smart dude. But in his book, Woke Racism, one of the things he recommends is having a law that would 
allow, which would prevent you from firing anybody on the basis of political views. And I run a nonprofit myself and I and I defend freedom of speech. And I think he was kind of surprised. And someone on the left, actually, Genevieve Laker, was also surprised that I completely oppose this. Because um, even though I argue for not firing, for voluntarily not firing people on the basis of their political view, as an employer, I know that the people who would take most advantage of something as as um, vague and overbroad as just saying, you know, like, you can't fire people on the basic, basic of political view, guess what's going to happen? Every time you fire someone, they're going to say, oh, this is really about my political points of view. And, and the people who would actually exploit that the most, frankly, are uh, some of these very same students, um, some of these very same, uh, you know, uh, recent uh, recent graduates. So I think that would just be a disaster. I, I think there would also be a problem of, well, there could be issues with laws prohibiting that kind of firing based on what we would consider to be immutable characteristics, right? The, you know, we all know plenty of people who have gone through political evolutions in their life. So like trying to track how one changes their political views over time, and that's always being, you know, protected by a law like that. You can't, you know, it, especially for ideologically oriented especially I'm thinking nonprofits because that's the world where I come from as well. You know, when we're thinking about hiring, right, you know, we're looking for people who are aligned with the yep. interests and the ideas that we want to further. Right. And if we hire somebody, they're here for a while, you know, they have a change of heart, a change of mind in the way they think about these things. Uh, they're no longer aligned with us. Well, one would hope that they would decide to go someplace else and do something that aligns more with their beliefs. But right. under a law like that, you know, you couldn't get rid of them. You couldn't oh, yeah. let them go for no longer being aligned with the mission of your organization, which is pretty yeah. explicit. Yeah. No, and, and, and yeah. And when we talk about this internally about why, because uh, someone actually brought one of these laws up, you know, within our legislative meetings. And that, and since they know that I'm critical of people being fired, you know, if someone has like, you know, off the clock speech at the New York Times or just a regular corporation and they get fired for it, I'm like, OK, that's that I find that actually somewhat troubling. And they then extrapolate, oh, then you're going to want this law. And I'm like, no, yeah, th those yeah. are two, two very different things. And think about what that would do to a cause based nonprofit is one of the first things I bring up. Now, I don't think it should apply to any, um, but for a cause-based nonprofit in particular, you know, someone you hired who suddenly is not so great on free speech. This was something that um, uh, I remember Anthony Romero saying when Chase Strangio, Strangio um, said, uh, so the, the, this, this was an employee at the ACLU and was on record saying, that, you know, a hill he was willing to die on was um, uh, seeing uh, uh, Abigail Schreier's book. Um, uh, d d what was it? Um, Irreversible Damage uh, Banned. Um, and Anthony Romero of the ACLU defended that as being, oh, we have political diversity at the ACLU. And I'm like, we have political diversity at FIRE. But if someone actually raises their hand, you know, at a meeting and says they now support book bans, uh, you know, like we're they... I would I would encourage them to find uh, other employment. Contradicts the mission just a little bit. Just a little bit. You uh, you mentioned the use of you know saying people feel unsafe. Um, yes. And I know you dealt with this a lot in your uh, previous book with Jonathan Haidt. Where does this culture of safetyism 
come from and what influence do you think it has had on the problems that you are talking about in your current book? Yeah, so safetyism, I always give credit to Pamela Paretsky for being the one who coined that term. Um, and, and it's something she was the chief researcher for fire uh, for, uh, for, for me and height for uh, coddling the American mind. And it was a name I actually had a dumber in a name I called it pseudo safety, um, which is not nearly as memorable. Um, but the idea was essentially making any amount of safety to be a any additional amount of safety being almost like a sacred value that that essentially the biggest the greatest golden life is being as safe as possible um, without anybody pu- pushing back saying hey actually there's downsides to being fixated on, on on safety and we call that sort of worship of safety safetyism within that and that's something I was getting at with pseudo safety is also the progression of the term safe to mean not just um, physically safe, not just safe from violence, you know, for example, but turned into, um, uh, but, but turned into something more like a right to not be psychologically perturbed in any way to, to, to feel emotionally safe, but in a dramatic kind of, you know, anything that bugs me, makes me feel uh, the new word for that is, un, uh, um, is unsafe. Now, I think that comes from two different, very understandable directions. One is what I called in the book, in my short book, uh, Freedom from Speech, which I mentioned, Problems of Comfort, which we then call in Coddling the American Mind, Problems of Progress, where essentially as life, as you basically, as things get better, as countries get wealthier, as we live in uh, more, we we follow our dreams to go live in communities that reflect their values. It shouldn't be surprising that we get we have a harder time dealing with the discomfort of, say, disagreement, for example, or 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 the daily difficulties um, of of just you know being a free person in a free society. So I think there's some amount of the problem of progress idea that, that there are there's categories of things that get worse precisely because other things are getting better. This is my way of sort of squaring the circle with people like Steve Pinker, who makes the argument that an awful lot of things are getting better. Um, and I make the point that, well, but actually, I think those very trends are one of the re- are, are going to be a long term threat to freedom of speech, because the more comfortable, the more uh, affluence you have, the harder it gets to understand kind of the value of, of, of the pain of, of, of debate and interaction. But then there's just the regular old tactical part of it, that essentially, if you come up with a magic word that's, that is very emotionally compelling, that's, uh, that borrows sort of the, um, uh, the emotional freight of actual threat, and you say, uh, rather than just say, listen, I don't, I don't like, I don't like, I don't like Larry working here. Um, fine. Who cares? You don't like Larry working here. Larry makes me feel unsafe is the magic words to get rid of Larry. You could see how powerful it is too. even just looking at the Kevin Williamson getting fired from the Atlantic. Yeah. Kevin Williamson was never going to be in the Atlantic's offices. He was going to work from his home in Texas. And yet his em- very employment at this publication allegedly made people feel unsafe to the point where they had to to get rid of him. That actually brings up something I wanted to clarify. How how much of a distinction do you draw bet- in in all of this between people who have some kind of a prominence, um, you know, famous people that are quote unquote being canceled or even Kevin Williamson in this example you know, being fired from the Atlantic uh, versus what we were talking about at the very beginning, the just kind of 
random nobodies like Justine Sacco, who says something, uh, you know, off color, maybe not advisable, and that it turns their life entirely upside down. How should we think about the difference between people who have sought and already gained a public platform in different places versus Mm -hmm. people just living their lives, engaging on social media, but without much of a thought towards, you know, I want to be, I want to have this big public platform so that everybody is listening to and reading me and, and hearing my ideas on everything. I mean, the dominant victims of cancel culture are people you've never heard of. And there's some there's a, a number of irritating sort of minimizing responses to the existence of cancel culture, um, including an argument that's essentially, well, these are all famous people. Um, and, you know, like, who cares if famous people get in trouble? Um, and it's like, you're not recognizing anything more interesting than well-known people tend to be in the news more. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. that essentially, of course, we know about the famous people getting in trouble more than we know about the nobodies because they're because, that you know, that, that, that nobody knows who they are. And this this was a very funny kind of like response to the um, Harper's letter as well. It's like, oh, 150 like well-known people saying it's like, well, where's the letter with all the what people you've never heard of? Why, <laughs> why, 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 <laughs> like, yeah. what, what, what would that letter do and, and how would they even meet each other? Nor um, would it merit so much I, of a conversation, probably. Yeah. Well, it's one of the reasons why uh, we do that analogy to public employee law um, in there, because one of the things that public employee law does that we think makes sense is let's say you're a spokesperson, you know, for a mayor or something like that. Um, The law kind of gets that that means that you probably don't really have much of a public, uh, much of a private sphere. So if you like, you know, spout off about uh, you know, uh, this economic decision is actually stupid. I'm saying that without my spokesman hat on. It's like, yeah, you can you can probably lose your job for that. Like, and, and that's just kind of common sense that, that that essentially, like, if your job is to be a mouthpiece, um, then you have you know very limited uh, you know free speech outside of that. I did think though that um, even for the relatively well known people, some of it would just struck me as so silly in different cases. There was a case where Dave Weigel um, at the at the Washington Post retweeted a, a joke um, from a comedian. So what was happening that day um, was there was this article saying that uh, a huge per- percentage, huge percentage, um, like something like 30% of like Gen Z young women self-describe as bisexual. Um, but uh, most of them, like the overwhelming majority of them only have sex with men. Um, and that struck people as kind of like, what, what does that mean then? You know, like to, to, to self-describe as, as bisexual. Um, and he retweeted, possibly not the best judgment, but a joke by a comedian saying, you know, all women are bi, um, either bisexual or bipolar. Um, you know, little, little off-color joke. Um, and he was immediately suspended from the, from the Washington Post. And I tried to explain the distinction between free speech culture and free speech law, you know, very, very carefully on this, since I take some flack for it sometimes. And I was very clear. Legally speaking, absolutely, the Washington Post can do this, like, no no doubt about it. Um, But I think we'd live in a healthier country if the Washington Post came out and said, you know what, we're not in the business of policing jokes that our reporters retweet. So, no, we're not going to suspend him for retweeting a mildly racy joke. That would have been a healthier response, you know, in, uh, in my mind, because I do actually think that it's it's one of the things about like the targeting of J.K. Rowling. Like one of the ways to the ways to dismiss it is like, well, J.K. Rowling's a billionaire. She can take care of herself. It's like, 
Well, you know, listen to the, uh, the the witch trials of J.K. Rowling. It's pretty nasty stuff that she's been subjected to that shouldn't be minimized. But yeah, sure, she she's billionaire and she's tough and she she can she can weather this. But th- that message is not for J.K. Rowling to a large degree. It's like anybody who doesn't have a billion dollars in the bank seeing the weathering attack, uh, the withering attack that that was directed at um uh, at J.K. Rowling. They know they can't stand up for it. So it's really more of a warning for all the rest of you to yeah. shut up rather than this person that we can't quite get, but what if we could? Yeah, they become a totem as a warning to to everybody else. I, I'm glad you brought up the distinction between legal free speech and cultural free speech because I, I want to ask you to, to talk about the current states of those. And I, I thought of a comparison. I remember hearing David French talking about how with regard to religious liberty, mm-hmm. um, Protect legal protection of religious liberty has probably never been better in the United States than it is right now. And his comparison or his connection there was to say that the cultural power of religious people has been on the decline. Mm -hmm. Um, So they're more protected, but less powerful. Mm -hmm. Um, I wonder if you think it's kind of a similar thing that's going on right now with legal like free speech jurisprudence. From my perspective, not a lawyer, really, really good. Yep. Um, the cultural issue, though, is far more problematic. And so uh, talk a little bit about that. And, and why has, you know, going back to the idioms that you talked about earlier, why does it just ebb and flow? Why, why have we gotten into this kind of cultural trough on free speech in this given period of time? Yeah, I mean, the um, I totally uh, David's an old friend. Um, he, he was uh, and uh, we, we became friends geeking out about Star Trek way back in like 2001 when I was new at fire. Um, and I actually was one of the people who really advocated him for being president of fire, which he was for about you know, almost two years. Um, and it was really a pleasure to work with him. And yeah, we completely agree on, on, on this. I think the state of First Amendment law, very strong. Got my quibbles, of course, but very strong. Um, the state of free speech culture, whoosh, um, not so great. And I always have to, you know, I, I think that you, uh, there, there's a, a way to liken this to some of the economics, um, uh, an old saying in economics that uh, poverty isn't something you have to explain. Poverty is the natural state. Um, it, it's it, it's uh, well, uh, it's wealth and prosperity that you have to explain. It's kind of the same thing with freedom of speech. And the reason why I call my blog slash Substack the eternally radical idea is that Free speech doesn't come naturally to people. You know, they, they want cheats. They want ways to win arguments without actually having to convince anybody. They want to be able to figure out ways that they can use a minimal amount of energy to, to exert the most amount of power. Um, and so free speech has been pretty unusual in human history. It's been pretty rare, even in countries that promise it. Um, it only started, the First Amendment only started being strongly interpreted in 1925, believe it or not. Um, it was only in the 19, like late 1950s that we ended up with something that looks more like the First Amendment we have today. Um, so the law was not even very strongly um, uh, appreciated. And free speech didn't have that kind of talismanic value for uh, much earlier generations um, that, that it did when I was a kid. You know, like I feel very lucky to have grown up, um, you know, largely in the 80s and early 90s um, when there was a strong... Uh, appreciation for a culture of free speech and the the free speech law, you know, was doing well as well. And the ideal situ- situation, sometimes people misunderstand me on this one, is to have both strong free speech law and free speech culture. But I do really try to emphasize you won't have free, good free speech law for long, particularly in a common law country, if you 
if the cultural norms are stripped away. Um, in terms of like, how did we get to this point where, where free speech culture is not nearly as appreciated? Some of it's the the cold and personal, you know, the part of me that loves social psychology and, and social science. You know, there there is a tendency to want to attribute things to large um, impersonal forces like group polarization and all this kind of stuff, which are all very real and all very important. But I do stress in Canceling the American Mind uh, that a, a, a not insignificant part of this was very intentional, um, that, that essentially the attempt to diminish freedom of speech as being a definitive lefty value was something that uh, Herbert Marcuse you know, uh, really got behind in 1965, just one year after the start of the um, uh, uh, the free speech movement on the campus. He was advocating for um, uh, eliminating free speech protections for uh, so-called conservatives and for regressives, um, uh, right-wingers. And, and I kind of forgot how incredibly clear um, a, a, a repressive tolerance is about this. He, like, and it's not like it's not a smart. It, it's one of these things where, like, I just don't get why people think this man is smart, because it, it's the the argument is my side get free speech, you side you bad, you know, you know. It's like that's uh, like 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 that's as old as time, yeah. um, and it wasn't partic- it wasn't even worded particularly cleverly. Um, but I guess you know it was it was such a kind of comparatively radical thought. It was partially radical. It was a terrible idea. It's like oh, you're just justifying dictatorship again. You know, like it just in a different way. Um, you know, state state power being used to um, to, to crush people. Uh, and thankfully, you know, in the '60s, that wasn't. Uh, although actually, I mean, Marcuse was taken very seriously in the '60s, um, um, unbelievably. And then people like Richard Delgado. Um, Mary Matsuda, you know, the, the, the founders of critical race theory, uh, it, even though FIRE will proudly defend the right to teach critical race theory, I think anytime critical race theory comes up, the first thing you should say is, oh, by the way, the very first thing that the, 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 those scholars did when they got together was propose limitations on freedom of speech. And they're very open about this. The, the words that wound came out, the original article, I think it was 1980. Um, a, a version of it came out in 1994 with like Kimberly Crenshaw, Derek Bell, the, like all of the critical race theory, uh, theory people behind it. So there was, you know, a very intentional effort to get to sort of switch um, the, the the liberal left to the sort of like uh, progressive um, kind of CRT kind of uh, conception of free speech being bad. And I first ran into this when I hit uh, law school in 1997, because I just kind of assumed I've been Believe it or not, I'm left of center myself. And I showed up on campus and was blown away by the fact that, particularly at these elite colleges, um, there was already a great deal of free speech skepticism. So like my doing an externship at the ACLU of Northern California was kind of looked down upon a little bit, even back in 1999, because, you know, free speech, they, they, they came up with this idea that free speech itself was paternalistic. And I was like, what are you talking about? How on earth is free speech paternalistic? It's like, well, because you're telling people in the community what speech they can't ban. I was like, I don't, I understand what you're doing there, but it's absolutely turning things on its head. And and I'm, and what's weird is I don't even think you understand that you're doing that. So, so there was a pretty intentional effort to sort of um, turn the tables on freedom of speech. One of the, one of the impersonal kind of factors is once you're super majority and control, there's a tendency to, to see free speech more of a nuisance like this, this, you know, like when you, when you realize, wait, we're going to be the censors. Oh my goodness. Well, if we're going to be the censors, well, that's entirely different. 
Um, and it's uh, and unfortunately, as the um, generational people who are who are going on free speech, that's boomers and Gen Xers, are kind of dying off and retiring in higher ed. Uh, one of the reasons why, and, I, and, and my 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 COO might be mad for me make, making people so pessimistic, but. One of the reasons why I think we have to we have to really seriously consider reform is that the crop of younger professors coming out, they're much more politically homogenous than they are today, believe it or not. And they are much less good on free speech and academic freedom um, when it comes to major political issues. And that's scary. We've talked about uh, college campus, uh, mentioned Marcuse and uh, some of the originators of critical race theory, all uh, paragons of the political left. To what extent is this also a problem on the political right, cancel culture and problems from a cultural perspective with freedom of speech? I thought this was kind of funny. We've been taking some flack on the book because we take on cancel culture from the right. And it's like, well, of course we do. You know, like, <laughs> like do, do, do you have you met me? Yeah, uh, yeah. Like, like that, that's that's part of part of what we do. Well, I, I heard but you in don't... another uh, interview as well talking about what was it a hypocrisy projection that I, <laughs> I see this all the time too of like why hasn't Fire said anything about this and it's like yep like they have um, yeah we're we're quoted in the third inch of that article you just sent um, the it, it it it's amazing so so we've been taking some flack about taking on the right as well um, be, as if we're engaged in mindless both siderism and it's like well no I I. Perfectly happy to admit that most of the cancel culture that we saw, certainly on campus and certainly among students and in the corporate world, does come from the left. But that doesn't mean we're going to pretend that there's no cancel culture from the right. So we have three chapters out of you know twenty something chapters devoted to um, you know uh, uh, book banning, which I which I know is a loaded term and it gets misused a lot. But here we're talking about you know people literally getting arrested for books in. Public libraries, yeah, we count that as book ban. Tell, telling uh, bookstores in Virginia, bookstores in Virginia. I'm not talking about K through 12 libraries, um, uh, like what books they can carry, um, uh, or for that matter, you know, recharacterizing a book as being um, not appropriate for kids is one thing, um, and then moving it to the adult section. Sure, uh, taking it entirely out of the library, that's very different. Um, and 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 that's where we we draw some lines. Also, for the and this is kind of the world in which I live, for people who are just concerned about threats from the right, about one third of the punishments we see on on campus for professors come from initially from the right. In some cases, um, you know, conservative organizations. In some cases, you know, people like Todd Starnes at Fox News. Um, they they you know get people angry at professors for what they said and you know next thing you know they're being fired. Now to be fair, a, a caveat that I do make to, to conservatives because they're right is that in a lot of cases the people actually doing the firing are still on the left. Um, and if everybody uh, if all the if everybody on the left was still awesome on freedom of speech or or was or became that if they ever were. Um, Basically, none of this would be happening because it, it, if it was a conservative or a liberal, when uh, when someone said fire that person for their speech, they'd say no, no, we won't. But uh, we and we also take on some of the uh, some of the behavior in uh, in the media. You know, uh, when uh, we take on the situation, we talk about the situation. Megyn Kelly, you know, had the 
wonderful experience of being sort of pushed out of Fox News after being pretty hard on Trump in the first debate and then pushed out of NBC after, you know, running afoul of of, uh, of political correctness um, there. And we're like, congratulations, you've been, <laughs> you, you've been canceled by both sides. But I, but I do think that we I think we do a great job of being intellectually honest without actually engaging in sort of like the just the mindless both siderism that people are trying to accuse us of right now. A couple more questions before we get to the what do we do about this. But the you'd mentioned the Red Scare earlier. Uh, historically speaking, how bad do you think it is right now compared with historical, you know, periods of time that we're all familiar with like that? Is this, you know, better than the Red Scare? Is it worse than the Red Scare? How should we think about it comparatively? Yeah. So on, on uh, the second second time I mentioned the eternally radical idea, um, this is uh, something I'm going to be writing about. Oh, by the way, I'm, I'm proud of this. Uh, if you become a paid subscriber of the eternally radical idea, all that money goes to fire. Um, and and uh, it actually took a while to figure out how to do that without me basically having to pick, take a huge tax hit anytime. Any yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, so we figured out a way to do it um, that, that doesn't actually harm me. Um, and uh, so, yeah, please, please sign up. It's a it's a win win. Um, for for everyone, and we're doing sort of historical comparisons through it because, ah, oh man, I mean, how many people think they know anything about this topic? Um, and we'll come out. I remember Adam Curry like saying this uh, at the time we were talking about. I, I think at that point we knew of about seven hundred attempts to get professors fired since twenty fourteen, um, with you know about one hundred and fifty uh, professors fired, and he literally wrote. Well, any problem at that scale is basically effectively solved. And I'm like, okay, you don't know anything about this topic because let, what, you know how many professors were threatened, uh, sorry, were threatened and or fired um, after uh, in the five years after 9-11 for speech related to that or the Iraq war? 17. 17 were targeted and three were fired. And by the way, all three of them were justified by other things not related to speech. One of them... Uh, Ward Churchill, gross yep. uh, academic misconduct, which he really did. Yep. Um, Samuel Arian. Uh, actual ties, ties to, to terrorism. Yeah. yeah, actual ties to terrorism. And the third one was Elizabeth Edo, a little bit more complicated. But, you know, I've, I've come around to what the argument was. that She, she had a technical writing class, uh, like a half an hour a day, and she spends 10 minutes of one class uh, talking about her opinion on the Iraq war. And they basically said, that's not teaching your class. And it's like, okay, that's not that's not a laughable argument. Like, like, like the, there's a germaneness requirement in the law, for example, that that if you're the physics professor and talk about your opinions on abortion all day, they can fire you because you didn't do your job. Um, so it all and and but by the way, 9-11 was a troubling time for academic freedom and free speech. You know, like 17 is not nobody. Like and, and people were rightfully concerned about it. Now we're talking about, since the beginning of cancel culture, over 1,000 attempts that we know of to get professors fired or punished, um, about two-thirds of them successful in one, uh, one way or the other, uh, almost 200 firings. And this is just from the beginning of cancel culture in 2014 to last July. Um, it's, it's, it's getting worse as we speak. Um, so it's going to be over 200 very soon. Um, and we know that this is a wild undercount. Um, so, you know, almost 200 fired. Uh, because one in six professors say that they've either been threatened with punishment or punished for their academic freedom or free speech. Nine percent, one in ten, basically, uh, of students say the same thing. Um, like so, we're that that's uh, extrapolated. That's you know a million students and tens of thousands of professors that we don't uh, uh, don't yet know about. 
So if you look at the Red Scare, and the thing I have to explain about the Red Scare, too, is one, the law wasn't clear yet. Uh, a lot of university presidents are like, I'm firing these uh, uh, this communist professor because they're doctrinaire, because they actually that they, they they don't question what they uh, the ideology they believe and they're and they're going to indoctrinate students. But whether or not that was fair or appropriate um, it, it is one thing, but definitely not a, a kind of laughable rationale. It did actually happen during a time where there was legitimate uh, reason to be freaked out because American and British spies had helped Stalin get the bomb. And and like and I always point out like you'd be freaked out too during that time, and. Despite all that, about the standard estimate, and we, and we think we think now that it's probably more than this. Um, the uh, was that about sixty three professors were fired for being communists, um, about a hundred overall for beliefs. Um, it, with with a, a many decades passing, we think probably the number is somewhere between one hundred and one hundred and fifty. Um, but in the moment, you know, the, it, it was only like it was a maximum of about 100. And we're, we're talking about twice that that we know of. And also knowing that with, with that number of professors saying that they've been threatened with investigation, the, the number is surely much higher than that. So I hesitate to say that it's worse than the Red Scare because the Red Scare, you know, one of the worst parts of the Red Scare was actually the Lavender Scare, which uh, Jamie Kirtrick wrote, wrote wrote about, which was essentially um, gay Americans losing their jobs out of fear that they, they, they would actually be too easily blackmailed. And that's a scandalous, horrible thing. But in terms of scale, one of the reasons why I bring this up is because there's, to be clear, there's nothing like it in the 50 years since the law has been established. There's, there's nothing anywhere approaching these numbers. You have to go back to a time before the law even existed to, to look at things with these kind of numbers. And the only one that maybe exceeds the number of professors we're seeing fired was in the 1930s, um, which was a pretty crazy time for academic freedom, free speech. And none of none of these norms were established at all in the 1930s. Um, so yeah, it, it's really bad and it's frustrating to, uh, on, on the other side of the right, you know, we, we dealt with someone just completely minimizing this. Um, and it's like, it was, well, you know, it's cancel culture is a problem, but it's not a, it's not a five alarm problem. And it's like, there is no other thing to compare it to. Like, like it, 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 it's orders of magnitude higher than the next closest crisis, which was 9-11. Um, but okay, I guess, because like if this isn't enough to be concerned about, then nothing is. One more question before we get to the solutions part of it. I, I hope this comes out formulated as a question. But mm -hmm. I, I was thinking about this, and I've, I've thought about it previously, especially during like the uh, the George Floyd period of time. I remember when people were changing their images, their photos on Instagram to like the black square, and. I thought about it as like the, the people were getting harassed who didn't engage in a certain yeah. kind of speech. So like you, you have the problems that you've laid out, I think, very eloquently here of people who speak and are uh, attacked for, you know, targeted for cancellation as a result of it. Do you see any problems stemming from this kind of, you know, on, I think very social media, online oriented. I always think of it that line from um, Blazing Saddles, you know, I didn't get a harumph from you. Um, <laughs> like ev there's this demand that everybody echo the popular opinion of the time. Have you seen any issues of people who have been reticent to engage in certain kinds of speech who've been similarly targeted? Oh, God, absolutely. Yeah. And particularly in 2020 and 2021. Um, and this is one of the things that's been funny um, coming out of the uh, last several weeks of a genuine uptick, um, you know, since October 7th of pro-Palestinian uh, speech getting in trouble on campus. And, you know, there's no question about it, according to our own 
data at fire that that there has been an uptick there but it was kind of amusing to see people say oh my god something's happening now people are getting in trouble for their opinions and on campus uh, and it's like yeah welcome i, I, re- I read some- I read something in Politico that was like, we haven't seen anything like this since 9-11. I'm like, no, actually, you don't really don't know enough about that. Or McCarthyism. I'm like, or 2021 or 2020, uh, um, which are actually the worst years we've ever seen, or 2020 and 2021. Um, And a lot of that was about people just being unwilling to say exactly the right thing or saying something that was, you know, in in the most mildly critical uh, kind of way. I mean, one of the cases that we saw in in this absolute flood of cases that we saw in 2020 was someone basically just saying more or less that cancel culture was real and like, you know, getting canceled for it. Um, So, yeah, being uh, in the most ideologically hot times, um, uh, you know, rash uh, uh, groupthink kind of gets uh, uh, turned up to 11. And and even though there are people saying that, um, you know, uh, wokeness or whatever you want to call it is on the decline, um, I think that's a little bit like saying uh, that the American, the, the British actually won the Revolutionary War because by 1790, the Americans had stopped fighting. It's because they won. It's because people were su- sufficiently uh, sh- shut up and frightened, you know, t- to actually uh, t- to say anything. So I think we're still very much living in the shadow of it. And by the way, I think this is all going to get worse again in 2024. Um, I, 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 I would, I would love to be clear. I would love to be wrong about this, but I fear that in such a hot ideological year as 2024, cancel culture is going to make a ferocious comeback. The subtitle of your book is "Cancel Culture Undermines Trust and Threatens Us All," but there is a solution. Greg, what's the solution? <laughs> I hesitated with the A solution uh, because we spend a third of the book talking about potential solutions um, because we don't think this is an easy problem to fix. And that's wh- and that's why we address it from parenting. We have a lot about parenting in there. K through 12 reform. We talk about how corporations can keep themselves out of the, the, the culture war. Um, I, I went full full on vouchers, by the way. I'd never previously been a pro um, uh, K through 12 voucher person. And I was like, nope, sorry, this is just too, too. Uh, we need more dramatic steps here. And so I, I, I publicly changed my opinion on that. Um, and when it comes to higher ed, I mean, I think if there's an agenda for people for reform, step number one has to be uh, find a body, set up a new organization, find some genius to uh, organize efforts at higher education reform that include things like, step one, make sure that there aren't legal impediments to uh, competing models for higher education in K through 12. Like, do everything you can to pull out as many different things that could prevent you from, for example, I always like this idea of, you know, Steve Pinker, you, where essentially, rather than paying $70,000 a year to Sarah Lawrence, someone pays, you know, uh, some brilliant person uh, some amount of money per year to be kind of their mentor. Uh, you know, they, he has you read 30 books and you, you come together for a group discussion with the other people in your cohort to talk about it. Something that could be done incredibly inexpensively, but much more rigorously than higher education is today. I know Sal Khan is working on some stuff uh, for school schoolhouse EDU, kind of like, an, uh, uh, but he's even looking for ways to convert bachelor's uh, degrees. I think that in terms of Things that uh, I also have been accused of of not believing in any you know role for the uh, for the the, the uh, for legislation, and that's not true. I think that actually 
Part of the problem is that the existing way we regulate higher ed has required them and incentivized them to have to be massively over-bureaucratized. And that's got to be not just changed, but reversed. The hyper-bureaucratization of universities is one of the reasons why there's, they're so expensive and why there's so little free speech. And that, that has to be turned around. I think we should, uh, I have no problem with laws against political litmus tests in higher ed. Um, so, for example, the the passage of uh, uh, DEI statements, the idea that at a time of record low viewpoint diversity and uh, and cancel culture, unlike we've ever seen in higher ed, that someone would decide or, or actually almost half the schools in the country, I think more, that we need an extra political litmus test um, in higher ed in the form of DEI statements was just completely bonkers. And those should not those should I don't believe they're constitutional to begin with, and that's one of the reasons why they why they shouldn't exist. So there is no one answer. Um, the answer is we have to try a lot. We have to do a lot of experimentation. Um, but the uh, we can't just expect the cultural ties to change change and everything will fix itself. That's what we thought after you know, the end of the first great age of political correctness in the mid 90s that essentially, oh, yeah, we had this hot fever for enlightened censorship. And thank goodness that ended. But it didn't really end. It just became less popular among students and faculty, and the administrators glommed on to it. And I spent the early half of my career, more than that, um, fighting administrators who were still true believers in the old kind of enlightened censorship idea. And then what happened? Uh, Those same administrators met up with a generation that was much more interested, that that shared the same point of view. uh, And we've been living with its disastrous consequences since. Greg Lukianoff is the president and CEO of FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, and the author of the book, The Canceling of the American Mind. Cancel culture undermines trust and threatens us all, but there is a solution, which we've been discussing today. Greg, thank you so much for joining us today on Act Online. Thanks so much for having me. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you'd like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at producer at actin.org. Until next week, for Acton Line, I'm Eric Cohn.